Welcome to this eHIV Review Podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter on HIV and alcohol. With us today is That Issue's author, Dr. Geetanjali Chander, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Merck & Company Incorporated, and VIIV Healthcare Company. Learning objectives for this program include describe how and when to screen for alcohol use and determine the severity of alcohol misuse among individuals with HIV, explain the impact of alcohol use on HIV medication adherence, transmission risk behaviors, HIV outcomes, and liver disease progression, and describe interventions that can be used in HIV treatment settings to support a reduction in non-dependent alcohol use. Dr. Chander has indicated that she has no financial interests or relationships with a commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of her presentation. She has further indicated that her presentation today will not include any reference to unlabeled or unapproved uses of drugs or devices. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Chander, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Bob. The articles reviewed in your newsletter issue gave us a broad-spectrum look at the effects of alcohol on the health of patients with HIV infection. Today, I want to see how we can translate some of those findings into clinical practice. So start us off, if you would, Dr. Chander, by describing a patient situation. Okay. So J.D. is a 57-year-old man who came to the clinic after a five-year hiatus from his HIV care. He reports that his last provider told him that he didn't need to be on treatment. He's a former injection drug user, now on methadone maintenance. He does not use other illicit drugs. He does report social drinking and smokes one half pack of cigarettes daily. He has no other drug use. His other medical problems include a history of congestive heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction, chronic hepatitis C infection. His most recent laboratory studies show a CD4 cell count of 307. Five years ago, his CD4 cell count was 1,236 cells. His HIV viral load is 48,892 copies. His liver function tests are notable for an AST of 110, an ALT of 30, a T-bili of 0.7, an albumin of 4.2. Imaging of his liver, he has no evidence of hepatic masses. Between his liver function test results and his hepatitis C infection, I think we can assume you're concerned about his alcohol use. I absolutely am concerned about it. So how would you initially approach him about it? The first step really is to determine how much the patient is drinking. And the easiest way to ask about alcohol use as a first initial question is to ask individuals on how many occasions in the last year have they had more than three drinks on one occasion for a woman or more than four drinks on one occasion for men. This is considered a binge episode. And by casting a wide net, you're then more likely to get an individual to open up about their alcohol use and discuss whether they drink at all. And if the individual has had more than one occasion with one of these episodes, I would really follow up then with more detailed questions about the alcohol use. How many drinks does this individual have on a specific occasion? How many drinking days per week does the individual drink? And then I would also follow up and ask if there have been any consequences from the alcohol use, any harm, missed work, social, psychological consequences. You've been using the term drink. How is a drink defined? So that's a really good point. It's very important to actually determine what a patient is drinking. A standard drink is considered any drink with 14 grams of alcohol. 
And this is typically 12 ounces of beer, 1.5 ounces of liquor, 5 ounces of wine. The important thing to realize is that patients don't always drink in standard drinks. So for example, if an individual typically consumes 40 ounce beer cans, that's actually closer to three and a half standard drinks. So the NIAAA guidelines for drinking all refer to standard drinks. Let me propose a hypothetical situation with this patient. Let's say that this guy likes sports and Saturdays, Sundays, he's watching the games. He's drinking maybe five or six beers each time. Sometimes maybe it's a few more than that, but not all that often. Now, you find that he's had no tolerance or dependence. He's not had alcohol withdrawal. How would you counsel him? So I would classify him as someone who's an at-risk drinker, given that he is binge drinking. Just very briefly, the NIAAA defines hazardous alcohol use or at-risk alcohol use is more than 14 drinks per occasion or more than four drinks on one occasion for men and more than seven drinks per occasion or more than three drinks on one occasion for women. So more than seven drinks per week in women or more than three drinks per occasion in women. And for individuals over 65, they all follow the guidelines for women. So not knowing if he's had any further consequences, but assuming that he hasn't, given his level of alcohol use, that he's a hazardous alcohol user without additional consequences, I would do what's called a brief intervention. This is actually used in individuals with non-dependent substance use and is a brief directive interaction that provides personalized feedback on alcohol and alcohol-related problems. And it really follows a five A's format. So the first is to ask about alcohol use. You're going to assess the severity of alcohol use, whether the person has mild, moderate, or severe alcohol use disorder versus at-risk alcohol use with no consequences. You're going to advise the individual to cut down or abstinence. You will assist in goal setting and further treatment when necessary and arrange for follow-up to monitor progress. So it's, it's really, you know, the five A's and then really remembering that you can bring in elements from the history when you're actually giving advice and feedback, such as elevated liver function tests or depression or hepatitis C or HIV medication adherence. Let's focus on his hepatitis C co-infection for a moment. Now, he is HIV positive, but he's not on any HIV medications right now. So how would you address his hep C? Sure, that's really important. So first I'll address the alcohol use with hepatitis C. Ideally, he would be abstinent. There has been a recent study that came out from the veterans aging cohort, the VAX cohort, which definitely demonstrated that really any level of alcohol use among individuals with HIV and hepatitis C co-infection is associated with increased hepatic fibrosis. So we know that alcohol use does harm the liver and, in fact, can make it even worse among individuals with HIV and hepatitis C. So abstinence would be desirable, but it's not always achievable. And so the approach I take is that while I would recommend abstinence, even a reduction to safer limits is an improvement such that if, you know, this patient could get below four or five drinks on those binge drinking occasions to maybe two or three, that's probably better than continuing to drink five or six drinks on that occasion, though I would definitely first recommend abstinence. I would also counsel on the interactive effects of alcohol, HIV, and hepatitis C, and really at routine follow-up do this. Now, 
In terms of next steps in this patient, I do think antiretroviral therapy initiation is very important, not just for HIV, but also we know that among individuals with HIV and hepatitis C co-infection, antiretroviral therapy for HIV can actually also slow progression of liver disease. And so it's really, I think, very important to get him on medications, not only for his HIV, but also to optimize treatment for his hepatitis C infection. The other thing I would do is spend time really talking to him about his concerns about taking his medications, adherence counseling, and most importantly, the importance of taking his medications, even if he is drinking alcohol, because a number of individuals do actually think that they should hold their HIV medications if they're going to drink because there may be interactions between the alcohol and the antiretroviral therapy. Uh, Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Gitanjali Chander from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. Hello, I'm Jeannie Curley, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm one of the program directors of eHIV Review. If you found us on iTunes or on the web, please be sure to subscribe. This podcast is part of Johns Hopkins eHIV Review, an educational program providing monthly activities certified for CME credit and nursing contact hours with expert commentary and useful practice information for clinicians treating patients with HIV. By subscribing, you'll receive eHIV literature review newsletters and practice-based podcasts like this one directly through your email. There are no fees to subscribe or to receive continuing education credit for these activities. For more information or to subscribe to receive our newsletters and podcasts without charge, please visit www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our topic is HIV and alcohol, and our guest is Dr. Gitanjali Chander, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. We've been discussing how some of the new information Dr. Chander presented in her newsletter issue can be applied in the clinic. So to continue, doctor, if you would please, describe another patient for us. So we have a 25-year-old man recently diagnosed with HIV while hospitalized for depression. Post-discharge from the hospital, he attended a three-week alcohol detoxification program. He does not use illicit drugs. When he was drinking, he drank two 40-ounce beers daily, but has had no alcohol in the past three weeks. His CD4 count is 342 cells, and his HIV RNA is 53,000 copies. With this patient, doctor, what's your initial approach to his alcohol use? Given that he has just gotten out of a detox program, and prior to that was hospitalized for depression, the first thing I would do is assess his mood and his depressive symptoms to get a sense of how he's doing now that he's no longer drinking and no longer in the hospital for depression. Because certainly his mood could affect his drinking and could result in relapse. The other thing I would do is assess for cravings for alcohol. He's just been out of treatment. He's been out for three weeks. And typically, An individual who comes out of detox who is drinking quite a bit may have cravings, and these include thoughts, physical sensations, emotions that might be tempting the individual to drink. And after I assess if he's had cravings, I would probably probe a little more in depth if he has been having cravings to discuss his triggers for alcohol use, including risky moods and situations, 
external triggers such as people, places, and things, and internal triggers such as thoughts and emotions, really so that I can get a sense of how he's coping with not drinking. And after I've assessed all of that, if he tells me that he is having cravings for alcohol use, I would consider pharmacotherapy for relapse prevention for alcohol use. Pharmacotherapy to prevent alcohol use relapse. What options are available? Okay, yeah. So first, alcohol pharmacotherapy can really be helpful for relapse prevention among individuals who have had a severe alcohol use disorder and have stopped drinking. And so it's an important thing to consider when someone comes into the clinic after a detoxification and you assess them and they're having cravings. So there are currently three FDA-approved medications, naltrexone, acamprosate, and disulfuram. And naltrexone has been shown to be effective in reducing cravings for alcohol, decreasing relapse in multiple studies and meta-analyses. The most important thing to know about this, however, is that you do need to avoid using it in individuals who are using opioids. Acamprosate is another medication that has also been studied and has been shown to be effective in multiple clinical trials and in meta-analyses. Acamprosate increases abstinent time. And finally, the third medication is disulfuram, which is different in that it does not directly address cravings related to alcohol use, but instead is aversive therapy, which most people are very familiar with because it is the one medication that most individuals learn about for alcohol use. Are there any concerns with using these agents in combination with HIV medications? In terms of drug-drug interactions with antiretroviral therapy, there don't appear to be any significant drug-drug interactions between these medications and the various antiretrovirals. It's important with any of these medications to follow liver function tests after starting them because both disulfiram and naltrexone can cause elevated liver function tests. Another aspect of potential drug-drug interactions I want to ask you about. This patient is three weeks out of a detox program, but before that he was hospitalized for depression. Let's assume that he got medication to manage that depression, most likely an SSRI. Does having that drug on board make any difference in how you would start his HIV treatment? So my biggest concern if someone has depression is, you know, will or will I not choose to use efavirenz given the CNS side effects of efavirenz? He is on an SSRI, but given that we have so many other antiretroviral therapies now, I'd probably avoid efavirenz in him. In terms of starting treatment, he does meet guidelines for initiating treatment, and I would assess his readiness to begin therapy. I may have him come back for a visit or two if I was worried about his not following up with appointments. But in general, if he was ready to start treatment, I would. I would probably use a regimen with a higher threshold for resistance, such as a regimen consisting of a boosted protease inhibitor. I think it would be important to treat him to really optimize his long-term outcomes and also to avoid HIV transmission to others. And the best way to do that is to treat him and have him achieve an undetectable viral load. So you've got this patient on an alcohol relapse prevention agent and you've started him on ART. How would you monitor him for the effects of both these treatments? Sure. So if I also started him on alcohol pharmacotherapy, I would actually either have frequent follow-up appointments, or if that's not possible, 
I would actually, over the telephone, discuss difficulties taking his antiretroviral medicine, his alcohol pharmacotherapy, any side effects from the medications. And I would really touch base regularly, especially if we're starting both pharmacotherapy for alcohol use and the antiretrovirals. In discussing alcohol pharmacotherapy over the telephone, I would discuss if he having any cravings, is he attending mutual self-help groups. And then I would also really ask about any difficulties taking the antiretrovirals, and particularly in the context of alcohol use, and reminding him that even if he drinks, that it's important to continue to take the antiretroviral therapy. And finally, I would ensure that he actually comes back in in about a month to check liver function tests and to follow up on initial viral load response to therapy. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. Let me ask you to bring us one more patient scenario, if you would, please. Okay, DB is a 54-year-old African-American woman with HIV infection on antiretroviral therapy. Her current CD4 count is 761. Her most recent viral load is 1,300 copies after being undetectable for two years. She's on a regimen of tenofovir, emtricitabine, and rilpivirine. She has a history of alcohol use and notes that most recently she's been drinking a pint of vodka with orange juice, usually at dinner time and has been missing her antiretroviral therapy as she took her antiretrovirals with dinner. She most recently saw a psychiatry who started her on disulfiram, and she's had no alcohol in the past one week. Her increased viral load is troubling. Uh, How would you approach it? So the first thing, as we've described in the case, is that she does admit that she has not been taking her antiretrovirals. She's been missing dinner and, as a result, missing her medications, and that she relates this to alcohol use. And it is important to reinforce that alcohol use can result in antiretroviral therapy interruption and discontinuation, resulting in an increased viral load. So what I would do with her is really discuss her patterns of antiretroviral therapy use and think about ways in which she can incorporate taking her antiretrovirals into her schedule, even if she is drinking. And so while she used to always take her antiretrovirals with dinner, is there an alternate way for her to take her medications or an alternate time for her to take her medications? Because we may not be able to address the alcohol quickly, but we do know that we need to address it, but we also need to get her back on her antiretrovirals, taking them appropriately and getting her to an undetectable viral load. The other thing that I would discuss with her are her beliefs related to interactions between antiretroviral therapy and alcohol. So there was a recent study where they actually demonstrated among a sample of individuals who drank that a large proportion of individuals actually did indeed stop their antiretrovirals when they either knew they were going to drink or after they were drinking if they were hungover. And there were people who actually believed that drinking alcohol would result in antiretrovirals being less effective. So I would also want to get a sense of what are her thoughts or beliefs about the interactions between alcohol and HIV medications, and then also if her alcohol use affects how she takes her antiretrovirals. Finally, I would obtain a genotype to ascertain whether or not she has acquired any antiretroviral resistance with her viral load of 1,300 copies. Now, you said psychiatry has started her on disulfiram, which, as you noted earlier, is an aversion therapy. How would that affect how long you might wait to begin ART? So there's no interaction between the antiretroviral therapy regimen she was on and disulfiram. 
So if the genotype shows no evidence of resistance, I would restart this regimen. I would counsel her on the consequences of drinking alcohol while using disulfurem, which include flushing, headache, nausea, vomiting, anxiety. And I would also just ensure that she does return for repeat liver function tests. Finally, a couple of other things. I would just discuss her cravings and make sure that she's either participating in mutual support groups or continuing to follow up with psychiatry. And if she did have evidence of resistance to her current regimen, I would likely select a regimen again with a higher barrier to resistance, given that she has discontinued her antiretroviral therapy or interrupted her antiretroviral therapy within the context of alcohol use. So let's say, again, for the purposes of this discussion, that this patient comes to you and says, I'm really having intense cravings for alcohol. How might that affect your treatment? So what I would do in this case, if she's really having cravings, I would take her off of aversive therapy for alcohol use, disulfurem, and switch her to a medication that can actually address cravings, such as naltrexone. There are no interactions between her antiretroviral therapy and naltrexone. The most important thing to do is pre-screen her for opioid use. And if you are concerned that she's using opioids, also asking for a urine toxicology prior to prescribing. But otherwise, I think naltrexone would be a nice choice if she's having craving. Let's say that you do switch her on to naltrexone, but she reports she's still having cravings, even more that she's continuing hazardous use of alcohol. What would your next steps be? It's important in this scenario to make sure that she has access to more intensive treatment. In this case, she definitely should also be undergoing behavioral therapy to learn coping mechanisms and to really learn how to handle and manage risky situations, manage her triggers, manage her coping. And so I think this would require a team of individuals, including substance abuse counselor, a behaviorist, and a psychiatrist. I think once you get past a certain point, some individuals require more intensive therapy, and she would fall into that category. So it's really being familiar with what resources are available to the patient and resources are available in your clinical practice. Thank you for today's patience and discussion, Dr. Chander. I'm going to switch gears on you now and ask you to talk a little bit about what you see as the future of managing alcohol use in the setting of HIV care. I think that in general, management of alcohol use is moving into primary care settings from specialty settings. And a lot of this is really due to the fact that the majority of people who present with some sort of alcohol use disorder do not present to a specialty treatment clinic or to a psychiatrist. They present in the primary care settings, and it's generally picked up by the primary care doctor because there's been a change in the health status. And that's why it's really important that HIV primary care docs have a sense of how to appropriately identify risky alcohol use mild, moderate, and severe alcohol use disorders, and to really have an understanding of what can be done in their office versus what they might need to refer. I think it's increasingly important for providers to be comfortable with screening for alcohol and performing brief advice within the clinic visit, and to understand when we may initiate pharmacotherapy and then how to monitor it for alcohol use. Thank you for sharing those insights, Doctor. Let's wrap things up by reviewing the key points of today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. Uh, So to begin, how and when to screen for alcohol use and determine the severity of alcohol misuse among individuals with HIV. 
I think the major points here are that it is important to screen our patients when they come in for alcohol use and that we can use a single question as an initial screener. And if an individual does not drink or has not had more than one binge episode in a year, you don't need to ask further questions. But if they have, you want to actually ask more detailed questions about their alcohol use, clarify exactly what they're drinking, and determine how severe their alcohol use is by reviewing consequences and harms that may have occurred related to their alcohol use, including tolerance and withdrawal. And our second learning objective, the impact of alcohol use on HIV medication adherence, HIV outcomes, and liver disease progression. So today, we discussed how alcohol use can impact adherence and antiretroviral therapy interruption, that an individual can forget to take medication or stop taking them altogether, and that this can affect virological suppression, and that it's important to probe on what an individual's beliefs are about interactions between alcohol and antiretroviral therapy, as this may play a role in their stopping or interrupting their antiretrovirals. And finally, it's important to note that alcohol use does hasten the progression of liver disease among HIV and HCV co-infected individuals. So it's important to screen and discuss alcohol use among individuals co-infected with HIV and hepatitis C. And finally, interventions that can be used in HIV treatment settings to support a reduction in non-dependent alcohol use. Key takeaway points here are that you can screen and perform a brief intervention in your HIV primary care clinic, and it can be done very simply with a single screening question followed by more directed, detailed questions, and then giving brief advice on alcohol use. We also reviewed different pharmacotherapies for alcohol use for individuals who have more severe alcohol use disorders and who may be having cravings. It's important to be familiar with these medications as that will ultimately improve uptake of the medications among patients who may need them. And finally, it's important to note that among individuals who have severe alcohol use disorders, they absolutely may require more intensive therapy and that brief alcohol intervention alone will likely be insufficient in these individuals. And in these cases, ensuring that the person has access to psychiatric treatment, behavioral counseling, and further assessment for pharmacotherapy. Dr. Gitanjali Chander from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review podcast. Thank you for having me today, Bob. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ehivreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other healthcare practitioners whose work or practice includes treating patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. 
The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive EHIV review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHAV Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Merck & Company, Inc., and VIIV Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.